Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, pour out your spirit upon this, your word, and make it be for us the word of life, that we might be people of life. And now, God, hide me behind your cross, that your message of love and grace might shine through for the redemption of the world. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Born in 1820, the, the life of Francis Crosby had been blighted from the age of six months. She was known as Fanny Crosby to her fans later on in life. But when she was six months or when she was six weeks old, uh, she had an ordinary and common illness. The, her family doctor was out of town, and so they called uh, another gentleman who, who was known to be a doctor in town. And he, he applied a, 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 a poultice of mustard to her eyes. Many believe that well, they're not sure whether it was the the mustard poultice that the, that this doctor, a so-called doctor, applied to her eyes, or if it was a genetic disorder. But whatever the case, from that moment on, Fanny Crosby was not able to see. She spent the rest of her life unable to see. Just a few months later, when she was six months old, her father died, and so her mother was. Uh, destitute and uh, had to get a job. Again, this is in the year 1820, and so she became a maid in, um, for some of her neighbors. Uh, the family was living in New York City at that time, and uh, so they continued to live in New York City. Uh, Fanny's mother uh, was such a hard worker that by the time uh, her daughter got to be 15 years old, uh, Fanny Crosby was able to be enrolled in a uh, in a school for the blind, but at an early, early age, she showed uh, um, she showed an, a, an incredible talent, an incredible talent of of writing verse. At the age of eight, listen to what Fanny Crosby wrote. At the age of eight, oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't to weep and sigh because I'm blind. I cannot and I won't. The gift of an eight-year-old girl. As she grew into, again, teenage years and was enrolled in the school for the blind, she would be there now for 
12 more years as a student and then 11 years after that as a teacher. She had always been very faithful in her practice of Christianity. She was born and raised in the Methodist church, although in adulthood she um, she um, really was involved not only in the Methodist church there in New York City, but also in the Presbyterian church and multiple Baptist churches. She was the very first woman to ever uh, come before Congress and to uh, lead a poem before Congress. She was the first woman to come before Congress and to speak before Congress, Fanny Crosby. She went on to write over 9,000 hymns. She became one of the most prolific hymn writer in all of Christianity. She, um, um, when, she was, when she was there in New York City, she, um, she, well, she had lots of contact with uh, many presidents. In fact, it is, uh, she lived to be 95 years old, and she was friends with 20 different United States presidents visiting the White House on every single occasion because she was such a prolific hymn writer. When, Di- when Dwight Moody began to, uh, to sing some of her songs in some of his revival, uh, re- revival meetings, um, she just became world-renowned and world-known. You would think that someone who had written over 8,000, close to 9,000 hymns, would be someone who was well-off. No, she was not. Although she had uh, made a contract with her publishers that she would publish and she would produce two to three hymns per week, she found herself producing six to seven hymns per day. And she sold them all for one or two dollars. Most of them she sold to friends and family members. And back then it was not the writer of the hymns, but instead it was the publisher of the hymn that would typically be able to make the money. Fanny Crosby was deeply, deeply committed to caring for the poor of one. one, She, I mean, she was one of them. Upon her death, there were a number of ministries that had been founded by her, one of which, at least one of which still exist in New York City. Her work among the poor uh, can certainly be seen in her incredible hymn titled Rescue the Perishing. Have you ever thought about that hymn in response to Fanny Crosby and her work among the poor? Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, she writes in that hymn. Among other hymns, her most popular, To God Be the Glory. Pass me not, O gentle Savior, safe in the arms of Jesus. Jesus, keep me near the cross and blessed assurance. The last hymn is the one that we are turning our attention to today. Today we're beginning a sermon series, a, a series of, uh, a series of, of, um, of sermons that are, that's going to be focusing on some of the great hymns of our faith. You know, it's, I, I, I love, I, I, was just, I was asked just this past week what my favorite kind of singing in the church is. And sometimes, I, I'll be honest, friends, we, I think we get a little bit wrapped up in what is our own personal favorites. Um, I'm not, I mean, I don't know that I can say some of the, uh, whether some of the most modern of our worship and praise courses are my favorites or the great old hymns of old. 
But what I do know is that the words that we sing are deeply, deeply important. And it's one of the things that I love about the great hymns of our faith. The great hymns of our faith is because they teach us so much theology. When we are, uh, when, when we are singing about blessed assurance and we are, when we are singing out, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long, it, de- it, it runs deep down into our souls, doesn't it? So that song, Blessed Assurance, took place, the writing of that hymn took place when one of Fanny Crosby's friends uh, came over. Her, her friend, um, Mrs. Knapp, was the daughter of a prominent Methodist pastor in New York City. She was, a, um, she was an amateur uh, musician, but uh, Mrs. Knapp had come up with a tune, and so uh, she came to Fanny's house and asked, um, I've got this tune that's been running around in my head all day long. I'm not a great musician, but I think I can play it for you, and you help me improve on this tune. And so she sat down at the piano and began, began to play that tune. And she asked Fanny Crosby, so what does that tune say to you? Fanny spent a few moments in prayer, and she looked up from her prayer and said, oh, I know what that, I know what that tune says to me. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And just in a few moments later, the entire, the entire song was written, both music and, and uh, the lyrics. Such is the life of Fanny Crosby. And this is a very Methodist hymnal. No doubt about it. And it comes from our passage of Scripture today, Romans chapter 8, the beginning of Romans chapter 8. For for you did not receive the spirit of slavery or fall back into, into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. In the Roman Catholic tradition, there is little assurance when it comes to our faith and salvation. Oftentimes, at least in in, um, in in the 19th century Roman Catholicism, if you sinned and you died with an unconfessed sin, you weren't exactly sure where you were going to go. If you had been baptized, likely you would go to purgatory. But if you had single, one single unconfessed sin, you would immediately, at the very least, be sent to purgatory. And if the sin was serious enough, you wouldn't even make it to purgatory. But how could you be sure that all of your sins were confessed? Well, you had to go to the priest every single day and make sure that you confessed your sins and you received that pronouncement of, of, of being forgiven of your sins. So in, the Roman, in Roman Catholicism, there was really never any a whole lot of assurance of where you stood before the Lord. 
Now, in the Anglican Church, during the time of John Wesley, there was a significant debate in the Church of England whether they were going to be Anglo-Catholic or Anglo-Protestant. They didn't know what the Church of England was going to be. Meaning there were some Episcopal pastors and, and churches that were much more Catholic in nature. And they too believed that you needed to come and, and see that local pastor in order to receive the pronouncement of forgiveness of your sins. There were others, however, that were um, more Calvinistic in nature. They believed that there were some who were predetermined to be saved and some who were predetermined to be damned. But in some sense of the word, you could never really know which you were. Whether you were one of the elect or one of the condemned, you would never really know. Now certainly there were many Calvinists during that time that would, that would, that would say that you can know whether you're one of the elect or one of the damned depending upon your natural inclinations. But here came along John Wesley. And Mr. Wesley was an incredibly, an incredibly controversial figure partly because of his actions. He began to preach out in the open fields around uh, around Bristol, England first, and then all around London, and then all around, all around England. And so it was, he was very, very controversial. He was known as an enthusiast. And a religious enthusiast is not, well, that word does not mean as what it does today. It really, Wesley was really known as a religious fanatic. And if you know much about um, uh, Great Britain history, you will know that during the, the, the late, mid, and late 1700s, there was a significant move at uh, trying to suppress any kind of fanaticism. For you, would see, for they, for you see, they, they saw what was happening in France, the revolution that had happened in France, and they were doing everything that they could to keep there being an English revolution like there had been a French revolution. And so any fanaticism, any at all, was quelched. And John Wesley was seen as a religious fanatic, not only because he went out and he preached among the poor, not only because he believed that God could save us by faith, not by works, not by being good enough, not by dressing well enough when we came to church. No, he said we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by faith. That's how we're saved. And that made him incredibly controversial. And then, and then he came along and he began to teach that you can be sure of your salvation. Now this understanding of, of an assurance of salvation came from his father. His father Samuel was an Anglican priest. And on his deathbed, on his father's deathbed in 1735, his father... Samuel told his son, John, to be sure to, uh, to, to know about that inward witness. And his father went on to tell him, again, on his father's deathbed, his father went on to tell him that that was the strongest proof of Christianity available, that inner witness. It wasn't much longer that, uh, after that that Wesley began to experience that same inner witness of the Spirit. Up until that point, he was so fearful of what would happen to him if he died. I've told the story on his, on his way back from America, back to England, uh, he, the ship that he was on ran into this, ran into this large, um, 
large storm at sea, and Wesley found himself huddled at the hull of the ship. He had no idea what would happen to him if he died that day. And there he heard on the deck of the ship were some crazy German Moravians, and they were singing praises to the Lord. After after the storm calmed down, he began to, he began, finally got up enough nerve and went up to the deck of the ship and began to converse with these, with these Christians and ask them, how could, they, how could they be singing songs of praise during this storm when which they thought they were all going to die? And they said, oh, we are certainly sure of our salvation. We have no doubt where we are going when we die. And it struck Wesley. And he knew that he did not have that assurance of his salvation. It was just a couple of weeks later that he had that Aldersgate experience, that experience in which his heart was strangely warmed, and he said he became convinced that Christ forgave even him. Even him. There may be some of you here today who you may be able to relate to John Wesley. You've often asked yourself, or maybe someone has even knocked on your door at your house and asked you, if you died tonight, brother or sister, do you know where you would go? And you secretly wonder. Oh, you would never say it out loud to those who are knocking on your door. You may not even even admit it to yourself, but I would guess that likely all of us have wondered from one time or another. Others of us, that doubt creeps into us during seasons of our lives, and we do wonder, we, are, we, have, we really have no idea what's going to happen to us when we die. There are a number of things that make us not doubt the, the efficacy of the gospel, but instead they make us doubt our salvation. Some of those things a lack of service in the life of the church. I have found that those who are just simply sitting on the sidelines or sitting on the pews and, and letting, others, um, letting others serve, not only in the life of the church, but also out in the community. We look past the needs of others. When we do so, sometimes that allows doubt to creep into our lives, doubt of our salvation, inconsistency in our practice of our faith, inconsistent in uh, being, a, uh, being in worship on Sunday mornings or inconsistency in our, in our prayer life or uh, neglect of the means of grace, meaning neglecting praying and reading scripture and, and the fellowship of believers. Maybe there's a, there's a presence of a habitual or indwelling sin in our lives. I, I find oftentimes that those who have a habitual and indwelling sin, our besetting sin, when we have that in our lives, oftentimes that makes us doubt our salvations. God, if you really have saved me, why, why can't I get rid of the sin in my life? And I've even seen sometimes where just general disappointments make us doubt our salvation. But John Wesley, John Wesley believed that we will not, dare we cannot grow until and unless we are certain of our salvation. So how do we receive this Uh, this certainty or this assurance of our salvation? Is it something that we can do? Maybe if we can just go see a priest and the priest every day can assure us that we are saved. That's one way. Scriptural way, I believe at least, 
is that it is the Spirit living inside of us that bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Let me just explain it very briefly in my own life, how it took place in my own life. As a young teenage, preteen boy of 12 years old, I, I, I knew, I knew that the, the moment that I gave my heart and my life to Christ, I had, a, for me at least, a dramatic experience at an altar call. I knew at 12 years old that I had laid down my life for Jesus Christ. But even though I had that moment in my life, um, I was, I, I'd come into contact with some Christians that, that continued to put my salvation experience in doubt. They wanted me to come back up to the altar rail time and time and time again. I even experienced some Christians that they thought maybe I should maybe even rebaptize time and time and time again just so I would be sure. So I asked the Lord, God, I think I'm saved. And I, and I think you love me, but I don't know. Lord, give me, give me a, a word that I may know for sure whether I'm saved. What I have found over the years, when you ask the Lord a question, you better be ready for an answer. And the answer of the Lord was absolutely and overwhelmingly, my son, you are one of mine. I would just encourage you, if, if you are someone who is plagued by doubt, and you do not yet have that gift of assurance of your salvation, just simply ask the Lord. Ask the Lord, which one of you, if, if one of your children came to you and said, Mom, Dad, do you love me? Which one of you would say, eh, you got to figure it out on your own? <laughs> Absolutely not. You would grab them. You would sit them on your knee. You would hug them. You would kiss their cheek. You would cradle their, uh, their face in your hands and you would say, Oh, son, oh, daughter, never, ever doubt how much I love you. You see, the Lord Jesus does the exact same. Fanny Crosby was asked one day by a well-meaning pastor, I think it's a great pity that, that the master did not give you sight when he showered you with so many other gifts in your life. Fanny Crosby responded at once, for she had heard these kinds of comments before. Um, do you know that if at birth I was, I was able to make one petition before the Lord, do you, do you think it would have been that I would not have been born blind? <laughs> oh, I would never wish that I had not been born blind. For you see, when I get to heaven, the first face I shall ever see in my life is the very face of Jesus Christ. You, do see, you see, dear sisters and brothers, this was a woman who was sure of her salvation. She knew. She knew that the Lord Jesus Christ had forgiven her, had saved her, and even 
even a disability that she had experienced all of her life, it paled in comparison to the day that she would see her Savior. May you and I have such assurance. May the Spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. Would you bow with me? Oh Lord, we, we thank you for this gift of assurance. Lord, we, we know that sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we, we really do wonder in our own hearts, quietly in our own spirits, if you really do love us. Lord, help us to know on this day of your love in our lives. Help us to know on this day, on this Pentecost Sunday, Holy Spirit, come and bear witness with our spirits that we are your children. Lord, as we respond to your offer of the gospel with faith and with trust, Come, Lord Jesus, as we trust you with our hearts, as we trust you with our lives. Come, Holy Spirit, speak deeply into our souls and help us to know that we are forever, we are forever God's children. Oh, Lord, give us that blessed assurance. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? There may be some here today who are doubting. You may be wondering, I'm not exactly sure what would happen to me if something happened to me on the way home from church today. I'm not sure where I would end up. First, I would invite you to examine your hearts have you asked Christ to forgive you of your sins if not I would I would strongly encourage you to take a few moments and ask the Lord to forgive you for the Lord to come and be your Savior and Lord it may be that you have asked the Lord to be your Savior and your Lord but you still are not exactly sure ask the Lord Father, do you love me? Oh, he'll cradle your face in his, in, his arm, in his hands. And he'll say, my child, never, ever doubt it. Come, as God called you to come, spend some moments in prayer.